Hi, my name's Shelley Flett. Welcome to the Dynamic Leader Podcast, where I share insights, experiences, successes, and failures with leaders from across a broad range of industries and business structures. I maintain that each of us needs to be open to sharing our experiences and making the leadership playground safe enough to fail, to grow, to have fun, and ultimately become more dynamic. So please sit back and enjoy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another Dynamic Leader Conversation. So today, the topic that we're discussing is resilience. Uh, Why? Well, uh, because it's relevant. Uh, And it's relevant because we often dismiss it in light of other more pressing issues um, that we're faced with in our roles, in our businesses and in our lives. Um, And so it's a it's a really important topic um, and one that we are joined today by my guest, Fleur Hazelwood, um, who is a leadership expert and founder of the Blueberry Institute. Uh, Fleur's known for building positive performance cultures that deliver both employee well-being and commercial results. And so today we're talking um, with Fleur about resilience and, of course, Resilience Recipes, which is the um, book that she's recently published. Thank you so much for joining us, Fleur. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Um, So resilience is not a new topic. Um, It's something I know that I've been exploring um, for the at least the last four years, but tell us about your experience with resilience in the workplace, I guess. Yeah, no, one of the biggest challenges I think we have with resilience is that it means different things to different people. And most of us kind of know that we want it. And particularly in a work when we've got so much going on, we kind of like figure, all right, well, I could do with a bit more of it. But one of the biggest challenges is, is we don't actually really know what resilience looks like. And one of the main reasons for me putting together um, my book, Resilience Recipes, was actually to start making some of those links between what are the different aspects of resilience that are going to support you with well-being and what are the different aspects of resilience that will not only help well-being but also performance. Yeah. And so the challenge is, is there's no actual universally agreed definition of of resilience and resilience is also something that we all experience uniquely so if you can't define it and uh, you don't really know what it looks like to you then it can be actually really really quite confusing so a a lot of this was trying about trying to sort of like bring it down to tin tacks and say hey resilience actually doesn't need to be difficult resilience actually does have some benefits you just need to like figure out the right resilience strategy that's going to work for you. Oh, I like that. And that's definitely what we're going to be talking about um, in today's conversation. You attach it in your book to well-being. Um, what's well-being? Is there a definition for that one? No surprises here, but there is no universally agreed definition of well-being either. And I love that big smile. So my favourite definition of, of well-being is feeling good and functioning well and living a life of purpose and achievement. And that's sort of come from a a few different, you know, wellbeing definitions that that I've looked at and I've just cherry picked and, 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 you know, and created the the definition of wellbeing that that best suits me. But if you Mm -hmm. like type into Google, if you do a Google search that sort of like says, what is wellbeing? You get something like 590 million results, like, you know, back in about 53 seconds. And so, you know, most of us have taken a little bit of a hit, especially our busy leaders and managers over these last um, few years worth of with COVID. So we've taken a bit of a well-being hit. We know that we need to improve it. But while it stays being this like big generic term that doesn't mean anything to us personally, 
we're not going to be able to figure out the best way that we can actually make just small adjustments mm. as opposed to wholesale changes to how we feel, but then also be able to boost how we perform as well. Do you think leaders get the concept of well-being? On a nebulous or on a generic level, leaders know that we need more of it. Leaders know that they need to support their teams. Teams are saying that they need more help with well-being, but there isn't actually a lot of practical, tangible strategies and actions that are readily available for leaders to, to get hold of. Mm. And so Resilience Recipes is very much around helping people to actually start defining what resilience means personally to them and just to provide a selection of strategies that says, hey, if you want to improve the way that you cope with stress, Here's a bunch of resilience strategies that are going to be helpful for that. If you need to better manage your energy, if you're finding that you're struggling towards the end of the week to keep on top of everything, here's a different set of wellbeing and resilience strategies that are going to support you. So it's really about trying to put a little bit of the you back into, into wellbeing and provide people with a menu of choices where they can go, yeah, this is where I'm at and this is what's going to be useful for me. Mm. And that starting place very much is with ourselves. And once we've figured out what we need to do as, as leaders around making sure that we're in a good space as far as wellbeing and resilience goes, we can then turn our attention to better supporting our staff. To mm. so one of the things that I've seen with um, leaders over the last couple of years is um, that they have taken responsibility for the well-being of their team. And I think there's a, there's a bit of a differentiation. And I like how you said uh, you've got to work out what resilience, uh, sorry, what well-being looks like for you individually. And I also like that your resilience recipes gives a bit of a menu of choice. But I don't think, and I'd love your input on this, I don't think it's a leader's responsibility to work out what that is for individuals as much as it is to hold the space and let them do the work around what well-being looks like. What, what are your thoughts on that? Absolutely. Where I'm finding a lot of leaders are putting almost extra pressure or unnecessary stress on themselves is around this core belief that my teams are working so hard and they've been, um, you know, having to be really flexible and work with so much change and uncertainty. I can see that their well-being has taken a, a nosedive and I want to do something about it. And there's this real like desire and care and it's that almost that reciprocity around like they've really, you know, done so much great work to keep things going over the last couple of years. I want to do something back. And I think what's happening there, which you've um, hit the nail on the head very much around, is leaders are taking responsibility as opposed to enabling their team members' well-being. And one of the challenges with that, of course, with well-being being something that's experienced uniquely, it does need to be directed by each of your different team members around what's important for them. Mm. We've also got this, this challenge around team members actually also not knowing, you know, what to say or how to articulate it or what, what's going to, be, going to be reasonable. So we do need a little bit of scaffolding for leaders around how can we have appropriate enabling and empowering wellbeing conversations yeah. and giving our team members then the, sort of like the tools and language to be able to come back and say, you know what, here are the two things that, you know, I need for my well-being that will make a really big difference to how we relate and how we work together. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, releasing the pressure off themselves, you know, I've heard a few leaders um, in the past say, well, you know, I've, I've given them flexible working hours. I've, I've told them that they don't need to work in the office and that they can work wherever they need to. And we've offered EAP support and they've got this, um, you know, flexible leave and things like what more do they want if that's not well-being? And, um, and I think the <laughs> response is quite simple. Ask them. Mm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's so interesting because some people are really going to value flexibility of time, especially, you know, our, our team members that um, have small children and want to work, work around school pickups and drop-offs. Other people who are maybe, I guess, less, 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 less family-oriented and more socially-oriented aren't necessarily going to be wanting to spend more time at home. They're going to be wanting to come into work. But when they want when they come into work, they want to come in on a day when their other team members are going to be there so that, that they can have that interaction. And we've got this real sort of like juxtaposition between what flexibility looks like and what hybrid work looks like. And there is a role for leaders in having conversations with their teams around how do we recognize and acknowledge together our different individual needs. And then how do we actually want to be as a team? Mm. And I think if our leaders have more inclusive conversations with our team members and enrol them in what does greater wellbeing look like for our team, then they're also going to take the burdens off, off, off their shoulders. It's going to be a shared, it's going to be a shared conversation and a shared responsibility where the team is looking out for each other as opposed to the leader feeling like they have to figure out everybody's wellbeing on their own. And do you think that that's why well-being, because um, well-being wasn't uh, just a topic post-COVID, it, it's been something that's been on the radar for a number of years, particularly as we've kind of identified um, the impacts of mental health and performance and that kind of thing. Um, but do you think people being more involved in the conversation around um, what work looks like and effective work for individuals look like is why well-being is, has even made it to the agenda um, in the workplace because you know 20 years ago no one cared about well well-being <laughs> it was um you know wait for the drinks trolley on a friday um it's it's a whole new conversation it is it is a different conversation and and part of it is around i guess the evolution and the sophistication of some of our conversations around what does good performance look like and there's a lot of research now that actually shows that if you focus on happiness and health and well-being first, then there's a performance boost of anywhere between between 10 and 30%. So we've actually now got almost like the business case that we needed to be able to put well-being legitimately on a work conversation, you know, in, in a work conversation environment. Mm. The other thing that I found really interesting was even before COVID, so when we went through our really brutal Australian bushfire summer, I noticed coming out of that, that the conversation very much went from well-being being a nice to have to actually mental health and well-being conversations being a necessary. And so with that disaster that united our communities across Australia and also brought the community back into work and people were seeing the real effects of people that were traumatised and people were suffering through through that, that bushfire summer, there became a much greater realisation and kindness and empathy around the fact that we need to actually start treating people like whole people 
and being mindful and caring of their out of work lives just as much as their their in work lives. And so the conversation with wellbeing started or that acceptance and that importance of wellbeing started before our hybrid ways of working. What our, you know, various forms of, I guess, hybrid transition, I think we're still transitioning, it's almost like this transition period, this ongoing transition has now actually become, you know, an ongoing conversation. And the, the smart um, leaders and, and companies are looking at this as an opportunity to better support not just, I guess, their, their team members' wellbeing, but better, you know, support and enable them to do work that they love the way that they love it. It's uh, something that is, you know, very much an enabler and also an engagement tool for us to be able to keep our good, our good team members. Yeah, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Um, so a bit of a chicken and the egg question. Um, resilience helps wellbeing. Wellbeing helps resilience. You know, which came first? What's the key? You can have one without the other or not. What do you, what's the connection between wellbeing and resi- resilience? I love these chicken and egg questions. <laughs> it, it really depends on the frame in, within, within which you're, you're looking at. So I like to describe resilience as an enabler that enables us to boost or leverage our wellbeing. And so the way I describe resilience is a toolkit that's going to enable us to make those adjustments to our wellbeing and also make those adjustments to our performance. So while both resilience and wellbeing, um, you know, are absolutely um, interrelated, if you think of resilience as like a process and a set of skills and wellbeing as a state and an out and and almost, you know, a journey to, to outcomes, yeah. then I think that's going to provide people with a better picture around around how the, how the two, two are related. Mm. So, um, you know, a core set of um, resilience skills sits in this emotional agility, coping skills um, kind of band, which is around how we can better manage pressure and we can learn the tools to abuse our stress. Now, if we're better able to manage our stress at healthy levels, then that's going to have a really positive effect on our well-being. Definitely agree with that one. Um, absolutely. So um, when I'm thinking about um, resilience being compromised, even well-being compromised, I, I do think about burnout. And burnout is a conversation that I've had um, with a few people um, this year. I'm seeing a lot of it become more prevalent. But you've got a bit of an interesting experience around burnout yourself. I'm wondering if you could share that with us. I have a personal black belt in burnout. I'm absolutely (laughs) awesome at burnout. And uh, my own uh, personal burnout story is, I guess, what what put me on this particular trajectory and, you know, why I care so much around us learning better and healthier ways of of, of working comes from my, my own burnout, my own burnout experience. And um, burnout is definitely a combination of both what's going on internally as well as the external environment around you. And uh, I had a very challenging time leading a a large textile organisation through the global financial crisis. And so for me, I took on all the external um, pressure of the GFC and worrying about people's jobs, worrying about business performance. Um, how was I going to make sure that everyone was okay? How was I going to make sure that the business was okay? And then on top of that, I've got my own internal set of like perfectionist, overachieving type A personality things. So when you put put the two together, um, I think the only surprise that most people who who know me would have had was that it took me so long to get to 
to get to get to burnout. Hang on, and, and and was that because of your levels of resilience going in? Well, the thing is, and I guess this is this is this is one of the the reasons why I think it's really important for us to break down what the different types of resilience are. See, I thought that I was really crappy at resilience because I did burn out. But the reality was, is when it comes to coping with pressure and um, stress, I have amazing coping skills and I have amazing like planning and crisis management skills, which was what actually enabled me to keep the company together and make sure that everyone was like safe. And we actually came out of the GFC, would you believe it, in better shape as a company. While we lost sales, we grew market share and we grew profit. So that's what happens when you put an overachiever into a, into a crisis situation. Um, and so because I literally ran my energy not only out, but sort of like below, below energy, if you think about you know, if you drive a car for, 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 for too long and you drive it without the oil change and you roll out in your petrol, not only does the car stop rolling, but you actually damage it to the point where it doesn't doesn't keep going. So I thought my resilience was terrible because I was really lousy at energy management. But the reality is, is that resilience is around our coping skills. It's around our flexibility and our ability to sort of like see adversity and manage adversity as a challenge as opposed to a roadblock. And then it's about having enough energy in our tank to, st to, to last the distance. That's oh, a great definition. So, yeah, so my, my, my uh, resilience pattern is awesome at the crisis management and the flexible adversity skills and really lousy at the, at, at the energy, energy management part of it. And so I guess this is one of the reasons why I feel quite passionately about providing a healthy frame for resilience as a skill set to then support people in actually knowing where are their strengths um, and not just focusing on where their gaps are. So mm. all, as all human beings, we tend to focus on our, on, on our gaps and burnout in particular is something that really does affect or adversely affect your, affect your mindset and can send you down that, that negative, negative, negative path where you get to a place where you're thinking that, you know, nothing's good enough or you're not good enough or you can't do it anymore. Whereas the, the reality is, is we need a, a much more, I guess, you know, well-rounded approach to, to resilience. And I think that's certainly something that, you know, most of all, certainly a, a level of help that most of our leaders will really, you know, find useful in terms of framing up resilience as a set of skills that's going to be helpful. Mm. And so um, there was a medical um, diagnosis for your burnout, um, which wasn't burnout, um, but there was a bit of a road to recovery, which I don't think, um, I, don't, I don't know whether everyone really appreciates what that is. I was certainly surprised when I realised that um, a couple of years ago. Yeah, so burnout is, burnout is really, really tough. It's only just been in the last couple of years that burnout has been given a formal definition by the World Health Organization. So I like to describe it as I, I, um, I had my burnout experience before burnout actually existed or, you know, before it formally existed. And so for me, the path back to wellness was around five, close to so like four to five years of working at trying to work out via a whole bunch of different doctors what was actually going on for me. So I bounced from doctor to doctor and everyone was coming back and saying, your blood tests are in the normal range. And I'm going, well, what I'm feeling is certainly not, not, not normal. 
And so my burnout experience ended up with my body physically shutting down. So I had things like leaky gut syndrome. I had adrenal exhaustion. My allergies were on fire. I developed more allergies to things that I didn't have because my, my immune system literally just um, started, starting, started shutting down. And then that high functioning anxiety from an emotional mental health perspective just led me to feeling as, as, as flat, flat as a tack and then having to deal with depression as well. And so I'm very passionate about people recognising the signs when they need to make some changes before they get to a point where, you know, your body literally starts making decisions to stop for you. And, and it will. Path, yeah, and, and it will. And my path back to wellness took two years. So I think all I would highly recommend that when people start feeling wobbly, they take a four-week holiday and uh, get some medical attention to regroup as opposed to absolutely mentally trying to push through something that will eventually lead to a place where it's a much more significant road to recovery. Do you think it, one of the things that I struggle with, um, with you know, building resilience versus avoiding burnout is how much of it am I making up versus, you know, because you, you hear people, David Goggins is really good at this, that we're only using about, you know, a small percentage of our capacity and that we're all capable of so much more. And um, so, you know, I know myself is there's this part of me that goes, how far can I actually push it um, versus, what does the edge of the cliff look like and how do I make sure that I don't ever go over? But sometimes it's really hard to differentiate the difference because pushing beyond the point that I think I can then opens up more capacity and I think builds resilience. But going over the edge is, you know, a two-year recovery process. I don't know. That's a pretty big trade-off. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that... One of the things I think that is a really simple frame that might help people to sort of like work out, you know, how much pushing or, or striving is healthy versus unhealthy is to think about it, I, I, I think about it anyway in simple energy terms. So I'm pushing myself harder on this, is this actually giving me energy? Am I learning something? Am I growing? Am I excited about the outcome? Is it actually worth you know, putting this extra investment of like time and my mental resources and energy, you know, into this, you know, is, is, is this something that's, I guess, that's, that's filling my cup as opposed to draining it. And we're, most of us have got, you know, energy givers and energy drainers within our lives. And you can always tell when someone's energy is being drained because when they start talking about the task, they go flat and it's monotone and it's slow. You can actually hear energy in somebody's, you know, voice when they're talking about something that lights them up versus something that just sucks the life out of them. And so I think a really simple way of working out whether, you know, or starting to work out, I mean, nothing with burnout is like absolutely simple, but in terms of one of those like initial little tests is kind of like going, is this something that lights me up or is this something that, that that's flattening me? Is this a want versus is this a should? And that's going to start giving us some, some, some clues around, you know, whether, whether this actually is a healthy stretch versus uh, pushing ourselves too hard. Oh, I love that. Is this a want or is this a should? I think that is such a great differentiation because should implies that someone else wants you to do it, whereas I want implies that, you know, yeah, I want this. 
um, it's it makes it personal. That is a really great um, distinction. So uh, you share um, three resilience um, ingredients. Uh, you've got emotional agility, you've got mental adaptability, and you've got optimizing energy. Where did that come from? How, how does that work? Um, can you kind of share a little bit about that with us? So going back to the, there is no agreed definition of resilience and there is no one agreement by any academic or the science community or the medical profession on what it is. I did an extensive amount of, 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 of reading with the determination that I was going to come up or not come up, I was going to find the resilience, resilience definition. And what I found is that there are three different, you know, schools of thought and three aspects of resilience that people have done a lot of research um, on or have done a lot of a lot of work on. So emotional agility is very much around us understanding our own stress triggers and actually learning to, I guess, understand what's going on with our emotions. Like our emotions are, are directives. One of my, my favourite um, favorite academics in this area is, is Susan David, and she's got a great talk on, on emotional agility. And she likes to talk about our emotions as data points as opposed to directives. And so many of us, when we start getting like upset and we start getting stressed, we start to sort of like inhabit the stress. And there's a really fantastic skill set around being able to create some space to actually recognize in an objective way when we're being triggered and to create the space to act rather than react to emotional hijack. So mm -hmm. that's very much in our emotional agility toolkit. And that's around having something on hand for us to be able to cope with pressure in healthy as opposed to, to unhealthy ways. There's a, then a whole bunch of fantastic um, research around you know, how we can support people's well-being and performance, which comes from a mental framing perspective. So you've got the growth mindset work from, from, from Carol Dweck. There's a whole bunch of, you know, fabulous, um, I guess, you know, mindfulness and meditation um, type of traditions as well as research. Rick Hansen is a great one around this, around our mental frames for being able to view, you know, adversity as challenges, being able to like look at roadblocks with an optimistic lens, which comes from a place that says, yes, I will be able to figure out how to do this, as opposed to when life gets tough, going down for the count and literally not being able to see the wood for the trees. So that's a, another, you know, really well regarded and well researched area of resilience. And then the final one, which tends to sit more in the health and the performance um, sciences, is around managing our energy. And the resilience lens that I'm taking with this is not, you know, sleep more, eat better and, and move more. I think all of us intuitively know that. The challenge is, is we're not all intuitively implementing that. And one of the things I looked at is, is like, why aren't we doing it all? What are the things that will help set us up for, um, help set us up for success? And so it's not around managing your time, it's around choosing where you apply your energy. Mm. It's not just around saying, hey, I want to go for a run every morning. It's around putting boundaries around it and saying, okay, this is important and this is how I'm going to prioritise other things to make sure that I do it. So, and then it, it's taking quite a bit of stuff from the goal setting theory and James Clear's done some great stuff with Atomic Habits around, you know, how we can make it easy to be healthy and look after ourselves as opposed to, to, to making it, it difficult. 
And so those three three aspects of, of resilience um, that I've you know put put I guess in as our our menu of, of options, uh, you know, well well researched and, and supported areas across the literature. I just haven't found anyone that's actually put them all together. We've got a lot of academic specialists, yeah, for particular areas. But on a practical level, and I guess this is where the resilience recipes um, concept comes from, it's like depending on where you are at, here are, are three of the evidence-based, mm. you know, areas that I know have been proven to, to, to work across a whole, you know, whole, whole raft of, of years and, and the research for these types of things. Mm. Um, and what I like about that is it doesn't um, discount anything that you haven't included. It's just three that have stood out to you and um, they definitely um, resonate. I know in um, one of the uh, sections of your book, you talk about, um, you know, optimizing um, energy um, with, you know, the healthy basics like rest, recharge, fitness and fuel. Um, And I think about optimizing energy. I think about it from an operational perspective. I'm like, well, how do I multipurpose my time? How do I get the maximum benefit for this energy? Um, You know, and it could be folding a load of laundry while watching Bridgerton on Netflix or something. (laughs) But does that, does that come into, does that, um, is that optimizing energy or is that burning the candle at both ends? Not necessarily that example about watching Bridgerton while folding clothes. I find it very therapeutic. But you know, some people we try to sort of multi-purpose our time to to meet different needs. Absolutely, and one of the biggest challenges that we have is that we're multi-purposing everything, and we're multi-purposing everything all the time. And uh, the way that I like to describe it, uh, I was actually asked this this week, sort of like, you know, Fleur. Do I really need to like, you know, figure out this mindfulness thing? Do I need to like develop mindfulness skills? Because interestingly, mindfulness is one of one of those things that you can multitask. Mindfulness literally is about focusing on one thing at a one thing at a time. And so I guess one of the the um, frames I'd like to give you around multi multitasking is that you know, each time we're doing a number of tasks, it's the equivalent of opening up another like tab in our brain. So if you think about all the tabs that are continuously open on, on our on our laptops. So while we're folding the washing and we're doing Bridget, um, you know, and, and we're watching TV and we're keeping an eye out for, for the doorbell and we know that we've got a delivery and something something going on, we've got close to 10 tabs that are open. And even even if they're not the ones at the fore, we're actually devoting some, some level of, of, of energy to. And so when we talk about, I guess, you know, some some of the health hacks, it's really important that we think about, I guess, you know, what it means from a, a wellbeing perspective. So for me, rather than doing five things that hit all of our, our, our different like health, healthy objectives, I think it's more around picking one thing that's going to give us the most benefits. And so one of the things I'm really, really, really focused on, not just in the book, but, uh, you know, with all the all the workshops that I, I run with leaders as well, is don't try and change the world overnight or your world overnight because you're going to set yourself up for failure. Just pick one thing and give that one thing a go. Mm-hmm. So for me, a more healthy version of multitasking would be to choose your self-care activity. So for me, one of the the biggest superfoods is exercise. It gives you a physical boot. It gives you a physical boost. 
You can literally shake off a bad mood. So it's a great way of reframing your emotions. And also if you're finding that you're, you know, stuck in terms of trying to write something or figure something out, it gives you a completely new perspective taking. So for me, I would sort of like say exercise would be my resilience and well-being hack as opposed to trying to do five things while I'm exercising. Oh, yes. So um, watching Bridgerton while I'm on the stair machine, also not a good idea. <laughs> well, if it keeps you going on the stair machine for it does. Longer, fine, right? But we can't kid ourselves that watching Bridgerton while I'm wearing on a stair machine, stair machine, for example, is doing anything in terms of our mental focus and clarity, <laughs> right? So it's about it's about being deliberate about the thing about the things that we choose. So I would be saying, hey, this is how I can make exercise fun. So you know, mm, yeah, great. It, it, it's very much around the framing. I love it. I like being more intentional. Now you mentioned, um, you mentioned just before about um, our um, emotions being data points as opposed to being directives, which I love. Um, it, it's so awesome. You also talk about um, the difference between uh, our sympathetic nervous system and our parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, and I'm wondering if breathing or, or noticing the nervous system at which we're operating through can help us to um, keep emotions as data points as opposed to directives. And I might be connecting where there's no connection. So feel free to go. You're off track, Shelley. <laughs> I think breathing is another one of those superfoods like exercise. So I'm very happy for you to ask me this question. This is one of my favorite topics. Um, so one of the cool things about um, breathing is it's accessible to all of us and we wouldn't be here if we weren't breathing. So I think that's a, that's a, that's a great starting point. But one of the challenges are we sort of like came out of the, the womb automatically breathing and so most of us actually haven't been taught what our breath does or what our breath can do. And simply breathing is one of the best ways that we can create space between our emotions and then be able to frame them as data points. Breathing is also one of the most effective strategies for when we're feeling stress rising to be able to use our own physiology to actually diffuse our stress. Also, if we're having a sleepy afternoon, um, so maybe we're spending too much time in that, that rest place and we need a bit of a G up, breathing is actually one of the quickest ways to, to, to get, it, get us back, back up again. Mm. And so really, really simply, when you breathe high in your chest and you're focusing on your inhale, so you're like taking big gulps of breath, what you're actually doing is activating your sympathetic nervous system and you're literally taking in more oxygen and you're increasing the energy, I guess, you know, the amount of energy that's, 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 that's powering your body. When you are in fight or flight, what you'll often find is you're breathing short, sharp, shallow um, chest breathes, which is actually supporting and, if anything, emphasising the fight or flight that you're already feeling. And so just simply shifting from chest short inhale breathing and pushing your breathing down to your belly and making it slower and focusing on your exhale and pushing your belly out and really, really contracting all of the air in, taps you into your parasympathetic nervous system, which is your fight or flight. Um, not your fight or flight, which takes you out of fight or flight and it switches you into rest or digest. And so we've got this fabulous you know, human, human body um, tool that can either help us to like speed up or to slow down. Mm. 
Do you think that's a tool that leaders could fairly easily pick up the concept of and work with their people on in conversations or, you know, working through challenges? Well, in in a lot of the workshops um, that I do around foundational resilient skills, the one thing that everybody comes away going, oh, my goodness, and I can do this, is actually regulating their breathing. So if leaders are able to frame up breathing and mindfulness in a way that feels authentic to them and is natural in how they relate to their teams, it's really it, it's a really, really effective tool. Mm-hmm. And one of the simple mindfulness um, activities that I think works well in team meetings is to start a meeting by saying, okay, guys, we've got a lot, you know, that's also going on. Let's take a moment to regroup and choose to be here in this meeting. And so I'll often get people to just spend 60 seconds and I'll put a clock on, brain dump down everything else that you need to remember right now onto a piece of paper and put everything down onto your piece of paper so that for the next 55 minutes, you can be present and not worry about forgetting something that's important and you can pick your piece of paper up again. And even just that simple act of getting out what's in our head and down onto paper is already enough to start slowing slowing down people's sort of like sympathetic nervous system reactions that are racing because of everything they're trying to to remember or get to or, or work on. That is the best. I, I'm going to do that. You know, as a facilitator, it's really hard to, um, you know, cause I'm not, when I'm um, facilitating, uh, running training via zoom, I'm not running full days. So it's not like you can get people in at the beginning of the day and hold their attention. Um, and so, yeah, one of the big things that I am really aware of is this distraction or the temptation to to do things that are on your to-do list. So I, I love that as an exercise, um, even just from a facilitation um, perspective, but so powerful for leaders to be able to do that and give permission for people just to clear their minds. And it also enables people to be a bit, a bit more present. Mm. And once people get used to sort of like doing a brain dump, it's like, okay, you can actually put down that mental load for this next next 55 minutes. And then another really, you know, nice exercise, which is similar to the breathing one, is literally, okay, let's just like take, you know, stop and take three deep breaths and let go of everything else we need to worry about. Yeah. And again, it just by saying let's take three low, deep belly breaths, belly breaths is just just provides us with a really nice reset without getting all like yogi and, and woo-woo. So I've been studying this for, for eight hours. So I, eight, eight hours, my goodness, eight years. So I can give you the yogi woo-woo, but I promise you in a corporate setting that doesn't work. So they're, 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 the, two, they're, the, two practical, um, they're the two practical, I guess, you know, tips or strategies that the leaders I work with have been comfortable to say, yeah, actually I can do this without feeling foolish and my team will see the benefits and we'll, we'll all benefit from doing it. That's great. I think um, you could even just as the leader, you could do that yourself without saying a single thing and just take the three deep breaths because when you're part of the system, the system kind of picks up on um, where you're breathing from. I actually even think leaders need to be super aware of how they're breathing when they're going into conversations. You know, you go from one meeting into the next, into the next, into the next. That I would imagine shallow fight, flight, um breathing activating that sympathetic nervous system um, would happen without you even noticing if you weren't intentional of it yeah absolutely and what happens is is if we're existing 
pretty much for our whole day in our sympathetic nervous system, that is also the area where we are burning excess energy. Mm. So so like looping back almost to that optimizing energy bit, but when we're like breathing and we're applying the same amount of energy and we're gulping in ex- oxygen and we're rushing and rushing and rushing, what's happening is our body is continuing to over, um, I guess, overproduce the adrenaline and the, and the cortisol that keeps us wired. So that when we get to the end of the day, we find it even harder to switch off because we've just been pumping ourselves full of, you know, all of this excess energy during the day. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, breathing is a really nice way as well of helping us to regulate between when we need those bursts of cortisol and adrenaline to literally help us get to an urgent deadline, mm-hmm. um, but also then giving us the skills to sort of like say, okay, you know, no more urgency here or no more emergency, you know, here. Um, here are some cues body to, to drop, drop back down into rest and digest and let all that ex- excess adrenaline and cortisol exit our body so that when we do need to rest, we actually can rest as, our, as opposed to our brain staying, you know, wired and wired and, and overtired. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's such a, such a basic concept and I like that everyone has access to it. It just needs someone to kind of lead the way um, in doing that. On, um, on page uh, 93, I'm getting quite specific of your book. You, um, there's four questions that you pose. Um, so uh, you talk about thoughts are not facts. And I really, I like that because I think a lot of energy that we burn is in our own minds and not really blowing things out of proportion or imagining things that don't exist or making assumptions that have not been validated or ever. Uh, and so the questions, um, and you said that you've um, you've taken this and adapted it um, through a few things. This is one of these models you've kind of morphed together, is it? Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, I love the question. So, you know, is it true? Is it absolutely true? How does this make me feel? And what would things be like if I didn't hold this belief? Are they questions that you kind of go through sequentially? Sometimes. The is it true um, is is definitely a good starting point. Mm. So if we're if we're having a, a thought and and often you know we really can work ourselves up and create something to be upset about that's not there. So you know somebody that we really like just gave, gave us a wave in the corridor instead of like you know stopping and saying hello and instead of us going okay that person must be busy, our brain starts going oh okay, so what have I done to upset that person? Or why is that person now blowing me off? Or, oh, she's a bit snotty. She's a bit above herself now. Or what's going on for her? Or who does she think she is? And all it takes, you know, is one observation on somebody else's behaviour. And our, our minds are meaning-making machines. That, 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 that's, what, that's what we do. And so without even much effort, because we've got this wonderful automatic pilot brain, you know, thinking, meaning-making machine going on without any help from us whatsoever, we can find ourselves in the space of like, you know, two short minutes thinking like evil thoughts either about, you know, the person that we just had this experience with or ourselves, which are completely unfounded and that's just our brains making up stories around why someone's, you know, instead of kind of like acknowledging that the person's actually in a rush in between meetings that that there's something else going on. And so sometimes we might need to go, oh, hang on a second, is this really the right meaning? So this is, is it true? And going, what else could it mean? And if that meaning turns up as negative as well, it's like, 
Is this really true? So sometimes even that, is this true, might actually take take a few goes. Because mm-hmm. our, our brains um, very much scan for the negative and what's wrong in the world um, as a default. And so this is very much our, you know, reptil- reptilian brain survival mechanism that we, you know, developed in caveman days that can't tell the difference between a saber-toothed tiger, tra- um, you know, uh, uh, chasing us and you know someone that you know didn't say hello to us you know walking in between in, in in between meetings and so being able to ask ourselves those kind of questions you know is this true is this a helpful belief how do i feel about this and it's like well i'm making myself feel really like upset and anxious and angry about this and it's like oh this all this person did was rush past us probably on their way to a meeting so it's that, that, that kind of, um, you know, set, set of questions, I think, which can really help us to sort of like reframe things in a more healthy perspective in the moment. It definitely makes sense um, in terms of optimising energy is how much energy am I actually spending making, making meaning of things that I have zero data points to support and I'm, I might be well off the mark. And if I'm going to assume something how about my default assumption be something that gives me energy back like everybody loves me of course why wouldn't they (laughs) yeah absolutely and you know the person who blew you off in the court and in the corridor it's like you know hello this person has like saved my butt so many times in meetings um you know let's let's just roll with the default that maybe she needs some help back yeah, I must check in with them, you know, instead of that being a trigger to you create those negative thoughts on herself, it becomes a trigger to go, I must check in with them to make sure everything's okay, that you're making it more about them than you are about yourself. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So I've got one last question. I feel like I could continue talking, but it's about zest. And the reason I um, that I raise it is because I've been doing a little bit of work around strengths and done the VIA and um, zest actually comes up as my second highest um, strength um, behind hope. Um, And so I'm curious about what the benefits of zest are. I know it definitely lights me up, but you know, what are the benefits? That's really interesting, uh, Shelley. It might not, probably won't surprise you that um, my top VIA strength is hope and my second one is zest. See, so so I'm loving loving that you're picking on on this one, and I think it also goes back to that question that you were asking me earlier around versus you know pushing pushing too hard, and how I came back and said, well, let's do a reframe. You know, we know when we're going to hit the cliff if something is more you know an energy drain as opposed to an energy giver, and I think one of the beautiful things about zest is it's around having not just the physical energy, but also sort of like the, I, I like to describe as zest for life, but it's almost like that love of life and that full immersion and embodiment of, of where you are and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And I think um, zest is very close to our positive psychological term of thriving. So mm-hmm. zest is one of those, I, I like to think of it as a, you know, a super ingredient that actually helps us to know and engage in, in, in living our best life and being our best. And zest, I think, is a beautiful energy word because it encompasses purpose as well as, you know, physical fitness. It encompasses flow as well as as effort and achievement. Mm. And so if zest is down the bottom of, you know, your strengths, if you do do the VIA, it might be worth from a resilience perspective and also a well-being one um, to consider what that is for you and, and perhaps build some muscle around that. 
Yeah, absolutely. And what the aspect of and you know, and what the aspect of zest is that you know you you um you know you might you might be lacking in in that respect. Yeah, yeah for sure. Oh, I'm so happy to end um, the conversation on the, the zest. zest. <laughs> well, the fact that we've got hope and zest up there uh, definitely speaks volumes around the work that both of us do. I guess. Um, in the leadership space. Fleur, thank you so much for joining us um, for this conversation. I think resilience uh, has never been more important, but I think it it is always important regardless of um, the landscape and, you know, definitely things are not slowing down, they're speeding up. So um, I think your book gives people um, some really good ideas, leaders in particular, some really good ideas around um, you know, where they can channel conversations um, to help their their people um, have greater well-being and resilience. So thanks for the book. You're very welcome. And did you know, maybe you already know this, given how zesty you are, um, that actually the simple act of talking about well-being is also a well-being boost. Love so- it been an extra pleasure spending this time with you talking about something that is absolutely awesome not just in terms of sharing but also in terms of like boosting our well-being at the same time for sure my cup is full (laughs) thanks again um and anyone who's looking to grab a copy of resilience recipes i'll put the link as well as how you can connect with fleur um, in the comments and uh, i look forward to having another dynamic leader conversation with you soon thank you Thanks again for listening to an episode of The Dynamic Leader. There is no better time than now to work through your leadership and people strategy, to establish what the future might look like for your business and how you might empower your people to help you succeed. It is through building the capability of your people and reducing their dependency on you that will keep you moving forward at pace and will see you remaining relevant in the future. I have worked with over 100 businesses across almost as many industries and seen firsthand the challenges that come with employing, engaging and managing staff. If you're looking to improve how you lead, why not reach out for a conversation? In the meantime, thanks so much for joining me and stay awesome.